Over 280 million people live outside their home country. International migration raises difficult ethical and political issues for policymakers. What do we know about these issues and what policies exist to address them? Welcome to Across Borders, a podcast on global migration politics. In this second season, we examine the transnational governance of refugee protection, the rise of anti-migration parties and the evolution of citizenship policies. We pay specific attention to climate-induced migration and gender. The podcast is produced by the master's students of the School of Transnational Governance in collaboration with the Migration Policy Centre at the European University Institute. Welcome to another episode of Across Borders. The title of today's episode is Zoonotic Diseases During Disaster Displacement, Why It Matters. My name is Frederick Olin and I'm a master's student from the Geneva Graduate Institute. I'm currently doing an exchange semester at the EUI School of Transnational Governance and in the field of migration governance, my main interest lies in disaster displacement. And I am Bali Monsoneng and I'm from the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin and an exchange student at EUI and I'm particularly interested in public health. In today's podcast, we are particularly interested in the question of zoonotic diseases and displaced populations in disaster contexts. So zoonotic diseases are diseases that are transmitted between animals and humans. Therefore, this really directs us to the importance of considering the healthcare of people and their livestock during times of migration. In this episode of Across Borders, we're going to focus on the nexus of One Health and conflict-related migration, with a particular focus on internally displaced populations and risk of exposure to zoonotic diseases. What we really aim to find out uh, in our conversation with our guest speaker, Dorian Brom, is the interplay of zoonotic diseases and migration, especially in displaced populations. After looking at zoonotic diseases dynamics from a bottom-up perspective, we're going to be talking about how the policy responses have been so far, and then also look at the potential ways forward. So who's our guest speaker? Dorian Brom has a multidisciplinary background combining international development, humanitarian emergencies and veterinary medicine and has provided research, strategic policy, programming and evaluation advice. She holds a PhD in veterinary medicine at the University of Cambridge and is moreover the director of Praxis Labs and a current policy fellow leader at the School of Transnational Governance, a school of the European University Institute in Florence. Dorian has applied her academic expertise on zoonotic diseases in displaced populations resilience, protection and one health in the humanitarian sector through advising public sector institutions, international and development organizations, namely the IFRC, UNDP, Dutch government and more international organizations. As Doreen had done research on zoonosis and displacement scenarios with livestock holders affected by conflict in Syria and Jordan, as well as livestock holders affected by natural disasters in Pakistan. Our first question was whether she had observed any similarities in the responses across the regions. We were both interested to hear more about the authorities' reactions, as well as the reactions by the livestock holders. So yeah, that's right. I worked in um, uh, both with Syrian refugees in Jordan, in Mafra governance in the north of um, uh, Jordan, where people are very dependent on their livestock, and also in Pakistan, where people were internally displaced because of uh, disasters. Um, and in Pakistan, of course, people are displaced um, almost seasonally and annually on, because of the monsoon. 
And what is most uh, pregnant, I think, in both uh, situations is that people are very dependent on their livestock. They're uh, prioritizing uh, displacement because of their animals. Um, animals also play a big role in displacement dynamics. So it determines the destination location, the transportation, um, and whether households keep together um, or whether communities uh, split. However, in both, um, in both locations, in both contexts, it's the elites and the, the government, as well as the international uh, organizations that um, do not really uh, allow or facilitate these animals during displacement. Um, there's also a lot of uh, assumptions around animals. Um, so while the, the title of my research is Zoonotic Disease Dynamics in Displacement, there's a lot of assumptions that moving animals in refugee context and displacement will increase the risk. However, there has been very little primary data collection. Um, so the assumption is that health will be affected However, uh, the trade-offs between the lack of nutrition when you exclude animals from displacement versus the actual zoonotic disease risks are barely understood. You talk about how the international actors and state agencies assume that animals are drivers for zoonotic diseases, although there is a lack of research and evidence. How does this reflect in the suitability of the responses by international organizations as well as more local actors in their relief actions? I think it's important to also state that uh, the first responders to disaster displacement are the host communities. Um, uh, often these are neighboring communities. A lot of displacement doesn't actually occur over very long stretches of time. And obviously it means that uh, livestock is then um, herded together, for instance. So there's a lot of interaction between animals um, in, in the host community population. Um, and that means that they have to provide for water and feed, that they have to share forage uh, for the animals. Um, and that response is very clear because these communities have the same sort of traditional lifestyles and knowledge. Um, but what we see from the, the international relief aid regimes, for instance, is that there's a very standardized humanitarian response in terms of uh, shelter supply, uh, the number of food uh, that's supplied, uh, the non-food items that are supplied, and they do not include um, animal feed uh, on the whole. There's only the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UNFAO, um, that supplies feed, but of course only in the locations where they have access to, and elsewhere um, animals with their, uh, or people with their animals are dependent on the host communities. In previous pan and epidemics, one could observe dynamics of people fleeing the disease whereby especially people who are better off could be more mobile. Is this dynamic also visible in relation to livestock holders? And to what extent can holding animals facilitate or hinder migration? Um, yeah, it's, it's interesting to see that in communities, um, even in the communities that look quite um, uh, equal to us, there's a lot of inequality um, between households, between individuals and households, and a lot of that depends on the number of livestock being kept, of course. But what's interesting then during disasters, um, when a person is richer, considered um, uh, better off in the community, they will own more livestock and a lot of those will die either because of the disaster, during displacement, um, they, they have more um, uh, challenges in terms of losing the animals. Um, simultaneously, in, for instance, Syria, you see that if you start with a lot of animals, you have more animals to sell on the way, which gives you more money to actually move um, and eventually cross the border. 
Um, however, for instance, in Pakistan, um, you see the, the poorer population with less animals, they are quicker to move. They have um, an easier time to find a destination location because they do not have to take into account finding a safe place for their animals to live. So these dynamics are, are much more complex than um, is, is assumed at the moment. And it's very, it, there needs to be a lot of research and humanitarian response before displacement occurs as well to contextualize these different contexts. So in cases of disasters and conflict, the benefits and pitfalls of holding animals really depend on the context. Coming back to the potential of zoonotic diseases within the migrating groups of animals and their owners, to what extent are the livestock holders aware of the zoonotic diseases? In both contexts, what was interesting, if you ask people, do you know what a zoonosis is? Um, well, as we would hear, uh, most people would not be familiar with that term. But if you ask, what do you do if you get bitten by a dog? The response in both contexts is exactly the same. Like the first thing they do is go to the clinic to get a vaccination. They will euthanize the dog. Um, I see this in many other contexts that I've done research as well. Um, so there's a lot more traditional knowledge and local understanding um, of, of what uh, is the what increases the risk of zoonotic diseases. Great. Uh, thank you for those research insights and also just, you know, letting us know about what happens on the ground. I think this is also important because um, we all know that research and evidence is important because it influences policy responses. And so, I mean, talking about a topic that's at the nexus of migration, health and disaster, I think we want to really focus on the kind of policy approaches that could be suitable uh, gaining from your insights and your research. So um, can you tell us a bit more about why do you think that livestock is excluded or overlooked in a policy? policy response in the context of migration? Um, I think a lot of it has to do with the the roots of the humanitarian uh, responses. So the humanitarian sector as we know it now is based on humanitarian and human rights law, which is very much grounded in um, uh, World War II uh, response. Right. So a lot of these laws and policies were made in a very different context and responding to a very different kind of migration and refugee uh, situation. Um, simultaneously, the people that uh, respond from international organizations, UN or NGOs alike, including the elites um, in uh, national governments themselves, they have very little connection with livestock. They don't own animals themselves. They are not aware of how important these animals are in people's households, um, not only as an asset, but as an uh, essential livelihood, as the one mobile asset that they can bring along during displacement, as well as for mental health. And it's often described as a family member. Um, I've seen that in both um, contexts and, and in some other situations that's even more important. Um, so these policies do not reflect the reality uh, of these communities. A major problem is that these communities are often unheard. Um, in Pakistan particularly, the people that I spoke to were Sindhis. They, they live in the uh, southeast province of Sindh, um, where the governments all speak Urdu and they speak a completely different language. So they would, um, they don't even, they're not even reflected in the demographic census uh, to the sense that they move around seasonally, they are continuously affected by disasters, uh, so they have to uh, shift their location. Um, but they also don't own any land, so they fall completely within the, the, the gaps, the policy gaps 
that yeah. are very present. And this is very interesting because, I mean, the, the whole idea here would be to give more agency to, to migrants. Um, and so on a state level, um, you know, can you identify any resources or tools uh, and conditions that would enable uh, migrants to have an agency to manage the risk of exposure to zoonosis uh, diseases? I think we need to think at multi-level responses and, and policy developments um, in this stage. So, for instance, as I mentioned before, in Pakistan, a lot of problems are rooted in a sort of colonial system that was institutionalized by the Pakistan government, where you have a feudal system whereby people, uh, the poorest people work for a feudal landlord and don't own the land themselves. This um, is reflected in a lack of investment in their own uh, living conditions, right? Because if you don't own the land and you have a, a risk of being moved around even without a disaster, uh, but by the uh, will of the landlord, um, it reduces your will to actually invest in uh, a long-term settlement. Um, so there are very complicated, um, high-level issues that need to be addressed. And of course, this is not something that you can uh, look at in the next year or two. So simultaneously, you need to look at much more local solutions. There's a quite a strong um, and very effective um, uh, civil society in Bangladesh, for instance, that is really supporting the agency of these communities through nature-based solutions. There are very simple uh, things you can do um, by helping people um, get more resources to, uh, for instance, as I mentioned before, make sure that they can uh, boil the milk, um, facilitate their access to markets where they can buy fuel um, and uh, sell some of their products so they can make a better income for themselves um, and really include this livestock livelihood um, in, the, in a more comprehensive response to both international development and humanitarian um, aid. Okay, great. And I mean, uh, I'm looking at a, a recent context of the Ukraine where um, legislation was kind of loosened in order to enable Ukrainians to travel with uh, the animals. So, I mean, in this context it worked and so how can we see the facilitation uh, of movement of animals being enabled for uh, you know migrants and displaced uh, uh, communities yeah uh, that's a really good uh, point so in ukraine um, animal restrictions into europe were loosened because we uh, had so much sympathy with people moving with their pets um, and i think this uh, needs to be broadened to other kind of animals that are arguably more important to uh, to families and households um, so what could be done for instance is getting organizations like the FAO conduct vaccination programs as part of a humanitarian response system and of course what's most important is that you convince the national governments to actually allow people to move their um, assets into a country uh, with the understanding that if you control this properly through vaccination and potential quarantine where necessary you can uh, reduce the risks rather than increase this Okay, yeah, that's actually a very good point, which leads us to the implementation part, the policy. Um, what kind of data or evidence could support the facilitation of migra migration policies um, that would enable migrants to move safely with animals or, li or livestock? Um, I think I want to put um, in front that we, we shouldn't use the need for more research or the need for more data to wait to actually make policy, right, and implement policy, because this is often used by policymakers as a sort of postponement of the, of the actual action. Um, there is a lot we already know. Um, we, we 
what we're lacking is basically more information um, at an interdisciplinary level on the trade-offs. So while we can test animals whether they are diseased, we can check whether humans are more or less healthy when they cross the border, you also want to check what the nutrition levels and how they change if you take away the animals. Um, how much does it cost to vaccinate animals versus supplying food for humans uh, for the next, well often it, this is decades when people end up in refugee camps. Um, and how much do you need to invest in new livelihoods for people once they leave this refugee and migrant situation um, versus what you could have saved by, um, by uh, supporting these animals during displacement? You mentioned possible questions of costs in migration policy. In times of limited economic resources for donor governments, how would you make the point for more investment into policies and research on zoonotic diseases and migration specifically? Um, I think what we've seen during COVID-19 specifically, um, that there are alternative ways to conduct research much more um, cost-effectively and also implement um, action um, in a more sort of local local level. So there's a, an, an agenda towards localization. There is also a resilience agenda whereby humanitarian funding and development funding are sort of um, combined because there's increased understanding that whatever policy we implement has an effect on how the humanitarian situation will work out. Um, and I think this can be um, used better by policymakers and, and funders as well. Um, so using local voices, especially in these remote areas, from um, displaced people themselves, from refugees. There are um, really well-organized refugee organizations, for instance, that are already actively working in camps to uh, improve people's livelihoods. Um, and this is all much more cost-effective than whatever response we have done previously. And it also feeds back into what I um, started with earlier on in the podcast, where we have very standardized humanitarian responses de developed and designed in um, often Europe and the US. And this can be much better contextualized by the local population themselves. Integrating localized knowledge and bottom-up perspective into health policy is something that you also mentioned in your research. For instance, you argue that the One Health approach, the integration and combination of environmental, human and animal health, should be combined with a social science perspective. What are the potential benefits of such a combined One Health approach in comparison with other approaches? Um, yeah, so, so far, and this is what a lot uh, of these assumptions are based on, is that if animals and humans move closer together, that automatically disease will increase. Uh, but if you add social sciences, you will find out that these people actually very well know how to avoid disease often. Um, so in that sense, it's very important to include social sciences to understand people's traditions, people's knowledge, to avoid um, zoonotic diseases from increasing. So... Coming to the end of this episode, we conclude with the following three points on why zoonotic diseases matter in migration. First, there is a research and policy gap. While livestock holders generally have traditional knowledge of zoonoses and suitable responses, policymakers don't always have the specific and situational understanding of benefits and risks of animals in migration. Hence, policy responses don't always give the migrants agency to act most suitably. Second, This gap exists because policies are based on different contexts than what we see today in terms of disaster and conflict displacement, and because there is a disconnect between policymakers and livestock holders. Third, 
The potential risk of zoonoses can best and most economically be dealt with by complementing the international responses, such as vaccination programs, with local approaches and nature-based solutions. Moreover, despite the existing knowledge gap, there are low-hanging fruits that can be implemented and can be very cost-effective. To do so, it is important to consider trade-offs between costs and benefits of facilitating people to migrate with their animals. Thanks for listening to another episode of Across Borders, and we hope to have you tune in again very soon. You have been listening to Across Borders. Our podcast has been produced by Costanza Bindi, Marissa Profi, Pierre Canet, Alessandra Giancola, Ada Sofia Han, Tiala Ofanga, Carolina Komel, Mbali Mozzoneng, Kut Nyang, Elin Sazak, Esteban Scuzzarello, Charles Thorran, Diana Usmanova and Fredrik Bollin. Supervision by Lorenzo Piccoli and Susanna Garside. Audio design, music and editing by Andrus Romashka.